0: Welcome to the Lovable Podcast. I'm Kelly Flanagan, clinical psychologist and author of Lovable, embracing what is truest about you so you can truly embrace your life. In this podcast, I'm walking with you each week for one year through Lovable's companion book, the year of listening, loving, and living. This companion book is currently available nowhere else, so I hope you'll join us on this journey, as together we recognize, reveal, and resurrect your truest, worthiest, most lovable self can't shake these lies, they keep running around in my head But what if I saw me the way that you see me? What if I believed it was true? What if I traded this shame and self-hatred For a chance at belief? Hello, everyone. This is the 22nd episode of the Lovable Podcast. Last week, we focused on what to do with our walls in relationships. This week, we're going to focus on what to do with our anger. How do we know when anger is healthy versus unhealthy, and how do we relate to it in a way that produces wisdom and connection rather than pain and aggression? Before we talk about that, though, I'm told there are two spots remaining for the Lovable Weekend in Waco, Texas on April 20th and 21st, and I'm hoping you grab one of or both, of those last two spots. Uh, You can come as an individual, you can come as a couple. Brynn and Ashton Gustafsson will be hosting us at their home. They're going to cater four fantastic meals over the course of the weekend, give us a tour of Waco, and we're going to have three sessions about worthiness, belonging, and purpose in which you'll be invited not just to entertain ideas about these things, but to enter into an experience of each of them. I couldn't be more excited to journey with you through this experience. So, if you're interested in more details or grabbing one of those last tickets or both of them, you can go to AshtonGustafson.com backslash lovable. Let me spell that for you. AshtonGustafson.com backslash lovable. A-S-H-T-O-N-G-U-S-T-A-F-S-O-N.com backslash lovable. And that's lovable with two E's. L-O-V-E e-a-b-l-e. So that's it. Hope to see you in Waco. Uh, And also, uh, if you want, by the way, a free ebook about marriage, a free sample of a book about your belovedness, and free weekly content, including my blog posts and podcast episodes, um, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com, that's drkellyflanagan.com, and sign up in the right sidebar, your introductory email, Uh, In that you'll get the free ebooks, and then each week you'll get one of the emails with the rest of the free content that I just mentioned. So we'd love to have you join us um, and uh, check that out. Of course, if you want more than just a sample of that uh, book about your belovedness, you can go to LovableTheBook.com, that's LovableTheBook.com, to find out about it. Uh, Lovable is available everywhere uh, in paperback, digital, and audio, so uh, pick up a copy wherever you like to buy books. would love to have you check that out. Alright, so I think that's it. Let's get into this week's episode. Let's talk about our anger and what to do with it in our relationships. Thanks as always for listening in. Hello Facebook Live! Welcome to week 21 of the Year of Listening, Loving, and Living, which is entitled Finding the Fear Underneath All the Fury. This week we're going to be talking about the anger you see all around you and the anger you experience within you. We're going to talk about how we handle that anger in unhealthy ways, and how we can begin to respond to it in ways that build true belonging. Before we transition into talking about our ego canons, though, last week we talked about our ego walls, and I'm curious to hear more about how that conversation impacted you, or how you're doing with anything else that we've discussed so far in this year of listening, loving, and living. It's all fair game. Deb W. writes, For me, checking in with the ego each morning was a good practice. Some mornings I found myself way up in the tower, hiding away. Addressing that and reflecting on the why Why she was up there was a great was great when usually I would just muscle through my day. Yeah, that's so right. That's a great way to describe it too, Deb. That when we're sort of feeling in that vulnerable place, when we're hiding away in our our ego castle behind all of our protections, it's it's exhausting, isn't it? The way you describe it, muscling through our day, it just requires so much work. So to take that moment to pause and just ask, why am I up here today? What what am I protecting from? What am I hiding from? And how can I how can I do something other than just grind out this day? What would that look like? Um, and I, up to you, Deb. If you want to share more about kind of how the day maybe went a little bit differently, love to hear that. I was very conscious of this exercise that we discussed last week. And by the way, the exercise was essentially to um, you know one of the things we discussed was sort of flicking through your ego, doing a self survey, being aware of. What are the ways I'm hiding behind my ego walls? What are the ways I'm inclined to fire my ego cannons and be aggressive? What are the ways I'm elevating myself on my ego throne, sort of uh, sitting up in this place of arrogance and feeling like I'm better than people? So just sort of being aware of those things, um, but specifically, especially the ways that we hide. Um, What are we doing to hide ourselves away, protect ourselves and not be seen? And, uh, you know, I was speaking up in, in green Bay this past weekend and, um, it was, it was definitely a vulnerable experience for me. Um, you know, a bigger crowd than maybe I've ever spoken to. And I was speaking in the round and that was something I hadn't done. And, you know, a new situation where I didn't know how the technology would go. I woke up really nervous and, you know, the first reaction is like, oh no, I can't get up there nervous. Right. I have to hide that. I have to hide my nerves. I have to hide my jitters. Um, and ultimately just found myself up there um, deciding to do away with the hiding altogether and just be honest about how I'd woken up nervous and, and jittery and how I'd tried to listen for the voice of grace in that moment. Um, and the jitters went away completely when I shared that, you know, that there's, there's the, the anxiety of being seen <laughs> and then there's this additional, then we start to hide ourselves away and there's this additional level of anxiety about, oh no people are going to see that I'm trying to hide my, my anxiety or my true self. And now I'm really going to be exposed. And by undoing some of that hiding, you, you at least eliminate that second layer of anxiety and you go, well, here I am. Um, and I suppose, uh, you know, I suppose you can, can reject who I am. Um, but at, at least I'm not going to be nervous that, you know, about how well I'm hiding. <laughs> um, and so that was the approach that I took on Sunday and I felt, a lot of, a lot of the jitters associated with my hiding go away when I did that. Brenda writes, "I was surprised that it was easier to unhide myself in comments than in person. I don't like to replay these podcasts in front of my family, laugh out loud." <laughs> oh man, it gets real. It gets real when it's family, right? Um, and I think we're doing something pretty, pretty remarkable when it comes to social media to be as open and connected and as vulnerable as we're being here. Um, but it really gets real because when this, when this is over, right, we get to click the finish button and, you know, some of the ramifications of our vulnerability is isolated to this, this moment, but boy, you get to, you get with family, right. And these things that they're easier to say, maybe on the pot, you know, on this live recording, it's like, Now you got to live out the ramifications of what you've said with people, and it is. It's more vulnerable. Um, It's harder for me, it's really hard for me to record these live podcasts if my wife's sitting out in the kitchen. In fact, I shoot her out the door right before this podcast episode, because I, um, you know, there's a vulnerability associated with um, sitting down with her afterwards and talking about what I just said. So anyhow, Brenda, you're not alone. you're not alone. It's the irony is that the people who we have the most attachment to, the greatest attachment to, the greatest investment in, those are the people. Sometimes it's hardest to be vulnerable with. So, um, so that's why we try to practice. We, you know, this is a place where we can practice. Therapy is a place where you can practice, and then you take that out into the real world, right onto the playing field, and try to figure it out. Deb W writes, Brenda definitely can relate. It's easier to type vulnerability than speak vulnerability. I love that. That's that's. That one's gonna last. It's easier to type vulnerability than speak vulnerability. Julie writes Last week I asked a sort of friend, somebody who cares and asks how I'm doing, to show up early for a class we take together so we could hang out a bit. It was because I wanted to talk and share what's been going on. I'm glad I did. Asking somebody to show up because I need something is not something I do. I recently realized that coping alone is something I learned in childhood. You know, that's such a beautiful example, Julie. We were talking about all these different forms of ego walls last week, right? Ways of hiding. And you just identified one. Simply not asking. Not asking for connection is an example of an ego wall and one that you learned in childhood. I'll cope alone. I'll figure it out. Um, man, that one hits home for me too. Um, and I think part of I've learned over the years, part of that's my personality. Part of that was the situation I was in. Um, but yeah, so just the simple act of saying, I notice you're interested in me. Um, you seem to to delight in who I am a little bit and uh, I'm wondering if there's more opportunity there to to show myself to you beautiful thank you for that example Heather writes my walls are firmly in place right now and having trouble releasing Um, I am recalling as you say that one conversation I had this past weekend with someone who um, and what I'm about to say is sort of uh, is the fruit of, you know, maybe 15 to 30 minutes of dialogue and getting to this place of realizing that when, when your walls are in place and you're wanting to let down the drawbridge and walk out and be more um, authentic and seen, but you're not able to do it, it's because you're not in charge right at that point of the drawbridge and of the walls, that it's, it's the little one within you going Um, Hey, adult. Hey, adult you. This all sounds great. Right? Like, oh, yeah, we're going to be more authentic and connected. But don't you remember? (laughs) Like, don't you remember what happened? Are you sure you really want to do this? And so in that moment, coming alongside that little one inside of us, um, and, uh, and figuring out how the two of you together can can begin to let the walls down um, in ways that feel safe for that little kid. Um, I think that that can be really healing. Um, And so each of us might have different ways of envisioning that moment of encounter with the little one inside of us. You know, I describe a visualization exercise in in Lovable where that happened for me. Um, But I know for some people it's writing, um, writing out a dialogue or writing a letter to that little one or um, it might be drawing a picture. um, But finding some way to engage that scared little one, right? That just says, "I, I'm not sure this is worth it," you know. And it's not just about what that little one experienced back in the day when, when you were little. It's about what that little one has continued to experience all the way along. That says, "Walls keep me safe," and it's crazy to let them down. So, my encouragement to you and to all of us. I mean, Heather, you're just being vulnerable enough to say it. Um, you know, at some point for all of us, we've got that that little kid in us who just says, "This would be this would be nuts to be vulnerable right now." Um, and it's important for us to. To sort of befriend that kid again, uh, Julie writes. Hmm, regarding walls, not feeling safe enough, in control enough, like the odds are are good enough to not get whacked harder than you or I want or need in return for showing a little skin. Something about finding courage. That's I love that, Julie. Um, that that courage is saying um, it's not being it's not being unwise, right? It's not being this person nails me every time I peek my head out. Every time I, I become vulnerable or show my true self, this person just nails me. Um, I don't know that that's courage to keep doing that. <laughs> I'm sure, I think that might be unwise. Um, but courage is that, that middle ground where you go, I have, I have an instinct that this person might be safe, but I have no guarantee. And, uh, and based upon that instinct and that sense that this person uh, may be a safe enough space for me to show more than I'm totally comfortable with, I'm gonna give that a try. That that's courage. Moving towards that sort of vulnerability is courage and wisdom. Thanks, as always, for this part of the discussion, everyone. Um, I'm I am hearing consistently from people that our conversations are really helpful to them. Um, like, yeah, Kelly, when you talk, it's great. But that conversation, that dialogue, is great, and it really it's due it is due to your willingness to be vulnerable. So so thank you, thank you for practicing vulnerability here in this space. Um, now let's transition into this week's reading, and then we'll keep the conversation going. This week we're going to shift from focusing on our ego walls to focusing on our ego cannons, our anger and our aggression and all of the subtle and not-so-subtle things we do to keep ourselves safe by going on more going on the attack rather than staying on the defense. Um, so I'm going to give this reading a little bit of context from Lovable by reading just a very short excerpt from Lovable um, that begins on page 60, and then we'll go from there. When your anger leaks out, how old do you feel? Better yet, how old do you act? Because there's a little one inside of you who is precisely that age, a little one who was present as your sense of worthiness began to diminish and your shame began to grow. When you follow your anger back to its source, you will find the little one inside of you who has been furiously protecting your enoughness all along. And that kid has every right to be a little angry. As you get reacquainted with that little one, you will also get reacquainted with the worthiness that has been preserved somewhere near the center of you. You will become grateful to him or her for holding on to the sense of worthiness you thought you'd lost. Then you will relieve the little one of this burden. You'll say, rest now, little one, I can take it from here, and that will be another beginning. It will be the beginning of trading in your anger for tenderness. You see, anger is a bottomless resource. It can't be reduced by expressing it. Anger begets anger. Anger feeds on itself, but anger can be exchanged. It can be traded in for the next breadcrumb, which is usually fear, and then your fear will lead you to your sorrow and sadness and grief. But the good news is that sorrow, sadness, and grief do diminish when they are expressed, and something else begins to grow in their place. Joy, lightness, tenderness, and eventually and blessedly forgiveness. Forgiveness of glassy eyes and distant gazes. Forgiveness even of those who led you into your dark wood. But you can't rush it, friend. The restoration of your heart can only happen one breadcrumb at a time. Start by looking for your anger and let it lead you back to everything that is lovable within you. Let it lead you home. As I read that, I realize there's about four metaphors mixed into that that have been getting developed already to this point in the book. So uh, when you hear dark wood, um, breadcrumbs, you know, these sorts of things, um, little one. um, Anyhow, there's a lot going on there. Um, But I think that the gist of it is um, to keep in mind that... um, our anger isn't necessarily a bad thing, um, it is, but it is something that we need to attend to, and that the expression of our anger in aggressive ways doesn't diminish our anger, it just it, it multiplies anger. And so what do we do with our anger instead? We try to trade it in for more vulnerable emotions. Uh, we try to understand where the anger is arising from And then we try to express and experience those emotions and then those emotions can diminish. So this reading uh, from the companion book today is about essentially trading in our anger for something much more vulnerable. So why don't we get into that now? Week 21, finding the fear underneath all the fury. I once had a chance to travel to an exotic location with a friend. He and his wife had booked seats together, but when we arrived at the airport and they printed the boarding passes, they were seated at opposite ends of the plane. It was a nine hour flight. expressed my sympathy he looked at me with a sideways grin and he said no worries kelly we'll sit together i looked down at his boarding passes and wondered what he knew that i didn't his grin grew as he headed toward the gate people want to help kelly all you have to do is ask people want to help my friend talked to the attendant at the gate and he and his wife sat together on the plane in fact they ended up in business class my friend was aware of the first thing we all need to know about people people are basically good and wired for love and beauty. Most of us have been trained to believe people are basically broken and bad at their core. At best, we believe people are selfish, at worst, dangerous. Admittedly, I began my career as a psychologist with this assumption about people. I figured I was in charge of fixing the brokenness, correcting the rottenness. But almost 15 years later, I realized I was never really in charge of the fixing, because all along, my clients were fixing me. All along, they were teaching me about what is really at the center of people. And the truth is, beneath all the layers of protection and pretending, people are basically good and beautiful. As a psychologist, I'm not just a repairman responsible for fixing brokenness, I'm also an explorer discovering beauty. And over the years I've discovered it's always there. People are basically good, beautiful, and wired for love. People want to be generous and they want to smile, and they want to connect, and they want to leave the world a better place in their wake. People get out of bed, and they hope for something better, and they want to be a part of making that better thing happen. People want to redeem the broken parts of this world, and they want to be a part of a beautiful story. Except, sometimes we don't act like it, do we? When people dominate others and abuse power and act like animals, people don't seem terribly good or beautiful. When people get strung out on drugs, or abandon their families, or walk into a convenience store with a gun, or commit any number of heinous acts, both legal and illegal, people don't seem terribly good or beautiful, do they? When we get lost in our thoughts and sit at a green light for a little too long and the guy behind us ends up with a red face and a big pulsing forehead vein and spittle hitting the windshield and one of his fingers sticking up in the air, people don't seem terribly good or beautiful, do they? Which brings us to the only other thing we really need to know about people. If they don't appear good and beautiful, if they scare us or threaten us, it is because they are wounded and afraid. In October 2012, Taliban assassins attacked a 15-year-old girl on her way home from school. Four years earlier, at the age of 11, Malala, and I won't pronounce her name, so let's just call her Malala, I won't pronounce it correctly, Malala had begun an organized resistance against the Taliban by insisting upon full access to education for all Pakistani girls. She made a name for herself, and the Taliban had a bullet with that name on it. The gunman leaned into the car of schoolgirls and shot three times. The first bullet entered Malala's left eye and exited through her shoulder. The second two bullets missed and entered the arm of one of her companions. At point-blank range, the assassin missed, because, according to reports, his gun hand was shaking as he fired. Fear can fester and mutate into incredibly evil acts, and frankly, evil lives. But always, always beneath the corrosion is a wound and the fear it creates. Fear of never being enough, fear of never having enough, fear of the other. Fear of ourselves. The question is, when someone's wounded fear has usurped their goodness and their love and their beauty, can we have a vision of him that is bigger than his bullet? Do we see only the evil of his gun, or can we also see the fearful shaking of his hand? Because if we see only the bullet he sends at us, we will send only a bullet back at him. And then he will send another bullet at us, and then we another at him, and so on, and so on. And to hell with that, literally. A living hell for everyone involved. Most of us are not dodging bullets of steel, but I think most of us are being pierced by bullets of a different kind. The words of our lovers, the rebellion of our children, the betrayal of our friends, the indifference of a stranger. What if instead of controlling or retaliating or hating, we looked past the bullets and we looked for the shaking hand of the ones we love? What if we looked them in the eye and said, so you're scared too? And what if we looked past the shaking hand and into their good and beautiful hearts? What if we gave the same gift to ourselves? So that is the, the reading for this week. Um, and it is a challenging read. Uh, I feel that even as I read it. Um, one thing that I want to pay attention to as we talk about this is this idea. I think we want I to, think, I think it's really easy to label anger as good or bad. Um, but I think what we want to pay attention to is wh- from, from what part of us is the anger arising? If, if the anger is arising from our false self, Um, it's going to lead to aggression. Um, But if the anger is arising from our true self, I believe it leads to wisdom and wise action. Um, And so we want to be paying attention to our anger, where it's coming from. And if our anger is coming from our our false self, um, what we'll be able to discern is that there's a fear underlying it, a fear driving it, a fear triggering it. And then we can begin to trade that part of our our anger in for, for more vulnerable experiences. And we can begin to see the fear that drives the anger in other people um, when they're aggressive. So I want to sort of um, enter into the complexity of of all of that with you today as we discuss this. Marv writes, explorer discovering the beauty within. Very nice. Look past the bullets to see their shaking hand. Wow. A wise boss I had years ago who used to say, assume merit with everyone. Oh yeah. Um, I don't know that Um, We can ultimately go wrong in the long run if we just start from that place, right? Assume merit. Let's start with seeing what is good in the person in front of us, even if they can't see it, even if they're hiding it or pushed it away or protected it. Let's start with that. And this interaction between us is going to go better than it would if we didn't do that. Um, It may not go great. Uh, It may not turn out perfectly. We might end up getting nailed. Um, But it's going to go better in the long run than if we don't assume merit it's good it's good Marv thank you Marv writes the only danger is that assuming merit can be a should we hang around our necks which can lead to repressing our own fear sadness and anger oh man thank you for that Marv Um, yeah uh, grace grace can be that as well Um, you know we could just translate assuming merit seeing the true self in another person seeing their worthiness seeing their belovedness can also become an it can become its own ego wall right i uh because i because i'm intent upon being graceful to others um i have to bury all my fear sadness and anger because i don't know how those two can go together I don't know. I can continue to see this person with grace while also experiencing my fear, sadness, and anger. So those have to go away. Um, so yeah, so we, we want to, we want to find a place where those things can coexist. Number one. Um, and certainly not, yeah, hang this, I, assuming merit as another way for shame to kind of chip away at as well. You're not being graceful enough. You're not, uh, you're not being gracious enough. You're not being, because that's just shame, sort of piling on and uh and what we'll do is is more hunkered down behind our ego walls because we'll feel more more ashamed um so yes this is uh not not something we want to turn into another to-do list um but something that we want to turn into something that transforms the way we see things in in the long run sonali writes hello i do like this idea that those who hurt us are aggressively protecting their places of vulnerability one may assume merit intellectually, but still feel resentment when someone has hurt you. How to let it go? Yeah, um, and I would even I would even say, Sonali, like, if you don't let yourself feel that that resentment, um, if you don't allow yourself to feel that hurt, and even maybe an inclination to retaliate, um, that's that's a natural response. That's your natural ego response, and if you bury it. Uh, and don't learn how to relate to it, and how to become more familiar with it, and more wise about how you handle that response, then it will, it will start to um, go on autopilot. Um, and so um, it's, a, it's okay to have grace for ourselves and say, yeah, my first reaction to that was resentment, and hurt, and a desire to retaliate. And if I can admit that to myself, then I can, I can hold that in front of me long enough um, to be able to, to decide what I want to do with it had an experience, um, and Sherry, I think I mentioned this on Saturday night in Green Bay, um, it was last Saturday morning, um, and my, uh, daughter was wanting some grapes out of the fridge and my, my uh, son was like, no, you can't have all the grapes, but I'll break you off some. And my daughter said, you know, Quinn, you're being so controlling. And Quinn had this just beautiful moment where he stopped himself and he said, no, I'm not being controlling. I'm being greedy. I'm sorry. Here you go. Um, so just a moment where he could he could step back and observe his own um, you know ego scrambling f- out of a sense of scarcity that he'll never have enough <laughs> and that he has to hoard you know and just that moment to kind of look at that and go oh yeah um, that's my gut reaction right now but I don't I don't want to have it um, and so yeah so it's okay to acknowledge that sometimes. Um, Our first reaction is not to respond by assuming merit, but instead to protect, to retaliate. Um, But if we have enough grace for ourselves to to observe that moment, we get to make a decision about what to do with it. Deb W. writes, as always, whew, there's a lot there. I used to think that saying hurting people hurt people was trite, but it doesn't mean it's not true. Yeah, I know, right? It's it's one of those, you know, it's like an icon. It's like an icon that opens us up to a, a, a bigger... A more complicated reality right hurting people do hurt people um and hurting people hurt people because they are aggressively protecting um their places of vulnerability and their wounds um so when we see somebody who's out to hurt us it doesn't mean we allow them to hurt us and continue to hurt us it doesn't mean our our grace which we define as our ability to see the true self in them um, that doesn't mean that we allow them to continue to hurt us but it does mean it changes the way that we see them and we see what they what they truly are and what they're capable of being um, and we give them opportunities um, to act from that rather than from their anger and their fear and their hurt so um again it's it's complicated it's a fine line that we walk in and, and, and we have to be wise but if we're if what the temptation the temptation is that when they fire their ego cannons at you you immediately fire back right and you hope the range on your cannons is greater (laughs) um and, and what we're trying to do is disrupt that cycle of negative escalation and say oh when you fire your ego cannons i get it there's a scared little kid in there um and i don't terribly i don't like firing ego cannons i don't like attacking scared little kids right i tend to want to give them a hug um and so that's the place that i'm going to respond to is Um, my true self will see your true self and uh, and i will respond to you from that place of um, of seeing you that's what we're that's what we're hoping for here Dika writes thanks for writing that piece i remember reading it a few years back and deciding to forgive someone who'd hurt me but my forgiveness didn't seem to have helped them make things better there's a point in lovable where we talk about the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation right the reconciliation requires two people um and it isn't always the best it always, isn't always the right thing reconciliation um if another person can't receive our forgiveness and receive our grace if they um if they can't if they can't make some of the changes that um, allow them to become a safe space again to be in relationship with then reconciliation doesn't doesn't make much sense um, but forgiveness forgiveness always makes sense so dick i trust that that act of forgiveness um, shaped you in ways to make you more graceful in other relationships. Um, and it planted the seed of something in that person, whether or not that seed will get watered, <laughs> whether or not that seed will uh, be cultivated is one thing, but it's, it's all we can do is plant the seed of forgiveness in others. And Dika writes, my true self will see your true self. Thanks for wording it that way. Um, yeah, and um, you know, one of the themes of lovable is that you know um, each of us has a spark of God within us. And uh, it is not an unusual thing to be heard in Christian circles that the God in me sees the God in you, right? Um, that there's something really powerful about that, um, and it takes some of the pressure off of me, <laughs> uh, off, off of my ego-driven self, to have to um, get this right every time, and instead to say that there's a um, a bigger, more transcendent, most more mysterious presence within me um, that can do the seeing on my behalf when I can't. So. Um, that's sort of, that's, uh, sort of foundational to, to the Christian faith that I come from. Julie writes, I think Marv's comment links back to being wise. Sometimes identifying somebody's ego canons is enough to dull their sting, because it's about them rather than us, and that's about all we can do. Not move in for the hug. So I, I'm sure I've told this story before. I'm pretty sure it's in Lovable. It's one of my favorite stories. I, I, I honestly, I honestly refer back to the story on a daily basis told by peter rollins originally to me at a talk he gave and it goes like this um this sort of affluent you know texas oilman discovers that he's got this cousin seamus over in ireland and so he he travels over to ireland to meet him and he gets there and seamus is showing him on his, around his humble little property in ireland and the rich texas oilman boasts you should see my property in texas i can't even drive my car to the edges of it and seamus says yeah my car's broken too and just this idea of like in that case it's the rich texas oilman sitting up on his ego throne right and seamus just sees through it right and uh and it's a it's just enough to see through it because in that moment of seeing oh you're firing your ego cannons oh you're sitting on your throne i don't need to retaliate i don't need to correct you um in fact i don't need to do anything at all to that moment um and that in that moment maybe being my true self means just not responding in kind right? Um, so yes, absolutely. Just being aware that that's what's happening can begin to transform us as well as our interactions. Julie writes, anger as breadcrumbs, fury pointing to fear in us and others. Those are good thoughts, invitations for growth, easier to sit with and find a quick response with words. Yeah. And Julie, um, I may, I think I may um, segue to our, our weekly practice um, because that's... Uh, that's essentially what the practice entails, is this idea of um, sitting with these ideas and letting them start to shape the way that we that we look at the world and look at people and look at ourselves over the course of the next week. So I think it's a good segue into this week's practice. All right, so let's let's get practical now and specific and get into the week 21 practice. Here it is. This week, see fear everywhere. I know that sounds a little crazy, but bear with me. Every time someone does something intimidating, threatening, critical, or otherwise attacking towards you. Choose to see the fear from which that attack attack is arising. Relate to the fear instead of the attack. For instance, as I write this, and I wrote this um, fall of 2016, for instance, as I write this, we are in the middle of a divisive election season in the United States. When I log onto Facebook, I see angry rant after angry rant. It makes me want to write something angry back or never check Facebook again. But instead, I've been trying to focus on having compassion for the fear from which the anger arises. These people on both sides are afraid something precious will be taken away from them in this election. It makes me want to wrap my arms around them and reassure them, it's going to be okay, we'll figure this out, we can handle this if we're together. Now turn those eyes upon yourself. Revisit the attack column of your week 19 practice. Watch for those behaviors in yourself this week. When they occur, ask yourself, what am I afraid of right now? don't let yourself proceed with your attack until you have clarity about the fear that is driving it. As we become mindful of the fear that motivates our more aggressive behavior, we begin to develop compassion for ourselves. When we do so, instead of wanting to attack someone else, we end up wanting to embrace ourselves. Then revelation of our truest self always proceeds from an embrace of our truest self. Always. So the idea sort of embedded in this practice is first of all, to begin to disrupt the cycle of, of aggression and negativity and, and violence, verbal and otherwise, that happens between us and the people around us. And then number two, to begin to get more familiar, begin to trace our way back from our anger down through our fear to the little one inside of us that is still afraid. Because when we can connect with that little one, we are beginning to connect with our true self. And we can embrace that little one, that little one then, can, can begin to have the courage to go out and meet the world and, and reveal uh, him or herself to the world. And now we're cultivating true belonging. So those are the two ideas sort of embedded in this week's practice, and look forward to hearing what you think about that. Heather writes, This is especially good exercise for this week, considering how rough this week has been, and my own walls that have been up, and my own fear of taking them down. You know, Heather, um, one thing that I don't think I've ever talked about publicly or written about is about how um we tend we tend to as we sort of move back and forth between the different layers of our ego we tend not to skip layers (laughs) um and so um if we are if we exist for too long within that sort of hidden anxiety of our ego walls um what, what we will probably feel next is either the aggression of our ego cannons or the shame that is underneath that hiding. Um, we, we don't tend to jump right from hiding behind our ego walls to being elevated to a throne, you know, or to, to a connection with our true self. Um, and so um, the, the the hope is always that instead of escalating our ego, we're moving down to that next layer, right? So if we're feeling a sense of hiding and a sense of vulnerability behind our walls, then the question is, how can I how can I pay attention to the shame that is is undergirding that? Um, if someone is on their ego throne, I never if I'm working with them, for instance, in therapy, I never try to get them connected with their anxieties and fears and vulnerabilities. It's too big of a too big of a jump. Um, so if someone is sitting on their ego throne, if that's kind of where they exist most of the time, first, we try to get connected with the canons. Um, you know, one, one level of ego at a time as we begin to find our way back to our true self. Um, and, uh, and so that would be my encouragement too, you know, um, to anyone listening is, um, you know, be sensitive to what is closest to this place you find yourself in, um, And if you find yourself in a place of anger, your temptation is either going to be to get arrogant to escape that anger (laughs) um, and to sit on an ego throne, or it's going to, it might be having to go back into the vulnerability of your ego walls. And that's just, that's where we want to head, actually, um, to understand that better. Julie, with a great clarifying question, layers, throne, cannons, walls, shame, true self. Yes, that's, you just, you just described the way I experience um, everything. (laughs) Yes, layers are throne, then cannons, then walls, then shame, and then true self. And from an experiential, emotional level, you could say the layers are um, sort of emotional disconnection. I'm sort of above the fray of all my internal world and everybody else's problems. I'm up on the throne, so sort of emotional detachment. A lot of times to maintain this layer uh, will... We'll do whatever we need to do to numb emotions sometimes it's, it's compulsive work sometimes it's drinking drugging whatever Some, whatever we need to do to not feel everything that's going on down in these other layers and then yes cannons where we experience our anger and then walls where we experience our fears and then shame where we experience not being enough and then true self where we experience our worthiness but those are sort of the layers that we're trying to sink sink down through <laughs> to reconnect with who we are Julie writes, "That's a seriously useful nugget. The layers, I'm guessing. Um, yeah, actually, it was that. It was that concept of the layers. Actually, I did present that. I presented that in a staff meeting, like four or five years ago. it was that concept of the layers that um, produced the the ego castle metaphor. They actually perfectly uh, map onto the stages of grief. The stages of grief are denial, our thrones; anger, cannons; uh, anxiety and bargaining, walls; uh, sadness and sorrow, shame." And then peace and acceptance true self Um, and so what we're what we're talking about in the months of, of belonging in is is that there is there's a grieving process happening that our false self is slowly dying away so that our true self can be resurrected right and so this moving through these layers from denial about everything that's going on in me to reckoning with my anger to being aware of the ways that I'm driven by my fears, to being aware that really the sense of shame and sorrow undergirds all of that, and then moving through that shame back to our true self um, and the peace and the acceptance that comes with embracing our worthiness, it does mimic a grieving process. Um, and, uh, And the thing that's dying is our false self, slowly. Deb w. w writes: Yes, the death of the false self is necessary, but it's still the death of something, someone we've been all too comfortable with for too long. Thanks for that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's real grieving, um, you know. Uh, and <laughs> one of the things we talk about in 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 Lovable is um, to to realize that it to, to realize that it's a false self to begin with. Is a bit of a grief to realize that this thing I thought I was all along, and now I realize I have a true self. I'm, I'm other than that false self. Um, that's disorienting. That's disorienting. And then we enter into this process of beginning to let that false self go, um, and that that goes from disorienting to grieving in a lot of ways. Um, and so, yeah, this is a it's a it's a gritty process. Brenda writes: uh, Is it natural to respond in kind with each other? Hiding from those who hide, attack those who attack, and elevate myself when they elevate themselves. Yeah, that's, that's exactly the way um, our interactions will go and our egos will function if we aren't aware of them and making conscious, wise decisions about them, Brenda. The, back in graduate school, um, one of the things that guided a lot of the research that we did and the therapy we did was this thing called the interpersonal circumplex. It's a, it's a, it's a circle, and around the circle, are all sorts of um like every sort of behavior you can think of and the idea is that the um our behaviors either invite the exact same behavior in kind or the opposite behavior right so if i fire my ego cannons i'm either inviting you to fire your ego cannons or to surrender to submit and that that most of us are functioning unconsciously in on that axis um so in an interaction when someone fires their ego cannons to not fire back and to not submit um, changes changes the relationship changes the script right to not hide away your true self in that moment but to show up still without being aggressive it, it, it literally changes what is um, the default mode of our human interactions our ego interactions so um so yeah that's that's an important observation Shelly writes, and I'm realizing it's 10.02, so I'm going to have to wrap up here pretty quickly. Shelly writes, I read somewhere that as therapists, we can never be angry with anyone who isn't kind because we have an awareness of where the feeling may have originated from. I have found this true, but on occasion I have to step back. Um, yeah, I think it's a good point, Shelly. Um, you know, people people who know me know that I when I see words like never or always i tend to shy away from them but i do think that as as therapists we are we're sort of wired and we're trained uh to see the story behind um the the emotion the story behind the habitual behavior right and to have empathy for that and compassion for that and actually that's not a bad segue into to wrapping up today because uh Um, that's exactly what we're going to talk about next week so why why don't we wrap up the discussion there for this week um, and uh, and then continue it next week essentially Uh, so next week is week 22 of the year of listening loving and living and it's entitled putting stories before opinions Um, and so uh, we're gonna why don't we just make that a natural transition into next week Um, thanks everybody for a great discussion and until then remember you're lovable Thanks again for joining us on the Lovable podcast. Remember, this companion book can stand on its own, but it stands a little taller and a little stronger on the shoulders of Lovable. So if you have not picked up a copy of Lovable yet, it is available wherever books are sold, and you can get it in paperback, digital, or audio format. If you'd like to simply download a sample of Lovable, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. In the right sidebar, Sign up to receive my blog post by email, and you will immediately receive a free sample of Lovable and a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto. The music for the Lovable podcast is courtesy of Ellie Holcomb and is entitled Wonderfully Made from her album, Red Sea Road. Until next week, friends, remember, you are lovable.